Hello and welcome to the LA Venture Podcast, where David Waxman and Minnie Ingersoll, partners and investors at 10110. We've watched Los Angeles grow from a sleepy tech backwater to a bustling mecca of startup opportunity. Through conversations with fellow investors and a few other special guests, we'll deliver an insider's view of the LA tech scene. Today's show is sponsored by Brex. Brex is a credit card built specifically for venture-backed businesses. Brex does not require a personal guarantee. They have a really slick expense management that I personally appreciate. And Brex has a special deal for LA Venture listeners. Go to brex.com slash LA Venture to get waived credit card fees for life. Thank you, Brex. I'm super excited to have Adam Strzok here from Strzok Capital. Um, genuinely, I think you have been flying a little under the radar here. So I'm especially excited to hear your story because you sort of under the radar did a fund one that really crushed it. And now you've raised a really large uh, fund two or raising a really large fund two. So you're going to be a huge force in the LA ecosystem. I know you've got all these uh, Forbes under 30, under 30. Um, all sorts of great accomplishments, and I'm excited to learn more. Thank you so much. Really excited to be here. So we're in Adam's offices here in, uh, where, where, what part of town so is this? So we're in Santa Monica, technically. Yeah. Almost in Santa Monica. Yeah. Um, it looks pretty, pretty new around here. Did you just move in? We moved in around four months ago. Great. And, and how long ago did you move to L.A.? Yeah, so I've been here for around five years. Um, a lot of people you know, think I was like a genius for moving here. The real impetus for me was... Um, being in Manhattan and getting frustrated uh, that sort of every time I wanted to cover the West Coast, it would be on my quarterly trip. You know, deals that I would talk about would be dead by the time I arrived. Uh, my wife and I actually met at a Northwestern University, and my wife studied theater. Um, she's a level five improviser and does a lot of comedy, um, and she really wanted to move over here as well. So we literally just got to a point where our lease ended in Manhattan, and then we Airbnb'd for three months in the Hollywood Hills. And, uh, and now this is where we're living forever, and this is where our roots are. We have a 14-month-old, and we love this ecosystem. Wow. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't think, uh, well, I don't know much about your background other yeah. than the highlights. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, I lived there for eight years, then I grew up in the States in Boca Raton, Florida. Um, I went to Northwestern University, did the Kellogg Undergraduate Certificate Program, met my wife there. Um, then she moved to Manhattan to pursue acting. Um, I went to Georgetown Law. Um, then I was an M&A private equity attorney at Kirkland & Ellis in the New York Corporate Practice Group. So I know how it is to build 2,600 hours and work like crazy. Um, I realized really quickly that I was sort of on the wrong side of the proverbial fence. Um, and my brother, who's seven years older than me, um, he's a serial entrepreneur in the CPG space, um, was starting a company called Long Island Brand Beverages. Um, so I, I, I took that as my leap, uh, to, you know, my leap of faith, and uh, I joined him um, as a co-founder and board member. Uh, my mother was crying uh, when I did that. Um, you know, the, the thesis of the company at the time was to basically own everything that has to do with Long Island iced tea. Um, we were very much influenced by Bethany Frankel and what she had done for Skinny Girl. Um, so that was initially what we wanted to do, was, was really sort of create um, a high-end Long Island icy cocktail that you could just open up and drink right away. Um, we quickly realized that the slotting fees uh, can kind of kill any company when they're starting. You have to have serious scale. Um, and then we got an opportunity to essentially expand um, significantly by being in a lot of vending machines um, along the Eastern Corridor. 
Um, so we then pivoted uh, in real time because you can't put alcoholic uh, beverages in vending machines. Um, and we chose to actually then sort of do something in the non-alcoholic space. So we wanted to take advantage of um, you know, sort of the cultural affinity associated with Long Island IC, but actually make that in a ready-to-made, um, you know, sort of um, iced tea drink that was non-alcoholic that preserved the integrity of the tea. And uh, we did things like use reverse osmosis filtration and cane sugar instead of high fructose corn syrup, and it was organic. Um, and I can talk more about that if you want to, but we, we experienced rapid success from that. Um, and then my brother, uh, once we sold that company, uh, my brother then went on to start a company called Hungry Root. Um, he's raised a bunch wait, of money. Wait, from... I totally want to ask more questions about Long Island. I see. Okay. I'm super just interested in Sorry, that. sorry. I jumped no, too much um, into it. <laughs> you are a fast talker. It's awesome. For anyone who's listening on like 2x speed, it'll be, it'll be impressive. Um, but so just tell me a little bit about getting distribution for something. I, I This is not my space. I don't, slotting fees are the fees that you pay to retailers to get your beverages on the counter or? totally yeah yeah and, and essentially you know you want to try and get in with the big uh, the big east coast distributors um, but it's very hard to do initially so essentially what you end up doing is creating a sort of grassroots team of independent contractors that can go to stores and do things like you know, have end caps, do tastings, um, and you're really sort of working store by store by store. Um, it sounds very inherently not scalable and, and not something that as VCs uh, we like to talk about, but we actually realized really quickly there was a nuance that I think you would never learn from, a, from business school. You would only learn by just getting your hands dirty and really battling in the trenches. Um, we would find that when we would talk to individuals that own stores, you know, maybe they controlled two or three or four, but when it came to um, their uncle, their brother, and their first cousin, uh, they actually ended up controlling like 30 or 40 stores. So that allowed us to sort of do what we would call like, you know, true, like, you know, they're, they're, they, they, instead of being sort of single stores, they became um, SMBs, and that allowed us to sort of expand uh, very quickly. Um, in three and a half years, uh, we got into 7,500 mom and pops. Um, and then after that, we got into Costco, ShopRite, 7-Eleven. Um, I then had a really good idea uh, to petition the USPTO for the trademark to Long Island Iced Tea, um, which nobody actually owned. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do because you have to convince the USPTO um, essentially that people um, identify the name Long Island more with your brand than the geographic location. Uh, so the standard is obviously very high. Um, but, you know, if you do enough field testing, you can sort of get past that proof point. Um, and then essentially what the USPTO tries to do is they'll grant you the, the trademark, but they try and limit it as much as possible. So we got it in sort of the, you know, ready to drink, non-alcoholic um, sort of CPG category. Um, but when that happened, we got a lot of press. Um, and there was uh, an individual um, named Edward Cullen, who ran a middle market private equity firm called Cullen Investments. Um, he's actually a billionaire from New Zealand, was very attracted to our stronghold along the Eastern Corridor. Um, and very opportunistically, uh, he bought us out completely. Um, he then uh, combined the company with a few other assets and actually took it public on the NASDAQ. So it was a really, really interesting situation. I went from big law attorney, uh, you know, really working my butt off, uh, to still working my butt off, but this time for myself and, and you know, built something that my brother and I are really proud of. And then my brother really continued that entrepreneurial spirit, um, starting a company called Hungry Root. Um, he's Ray, he just 
recently, he, it was not recently, he closed like maybe eight months ago, like 25 million from Lightspeed. He's got Jeremy Liu on his board. Um, I went a completely different direction, uh, started aggressively structuring special purpose vehicles. I felt that with operational and legal expertise, early stage venture capital would be a, a great place to, uh, to, to participate, you know, a great place to play in. Um, you know, working with young founders, helping them establish product market fit, and then sort of most importantly, sort of really being with them at that inflection point where we're trying to establish what we call that blueprint and muscle memory to Series A success. Um, so I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Um, I wanted to uh, sort of establish myself, uh, you know, as a fiduciary and, and generate goodwill with a lot of people. So I, I started the Strat Capital brand, started doing SPVs, um, and the rest is history. Can you tell me more about SPVs? I feel like I should know a little bit more, but in terms of just the way they're set up and how yours were set up? When we when when I would find a deal, I could very quickly draft the subscription agreement, the operating agreement, structure the actual SBV, which is really nothing more than an LLC. You can do a, a manager managed LLC, or you could sort of structure it like a mini fund, where you could have the GP entity being an LLC, and then the LP, where all the investors come in. Um, but essentially, what you're doing is is you're you're very opportunistically fighting your way into a deal. Um, then what you would do simultaneously is create like a 30-page institutional grade deck on the deal, and then you're really playing the role of you know convincing people to come into the deal. You're also promising the founder that you know when when closing comes, I promise I'll come in for around 500k or a million dollars or whatever it is. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, a lot of things have to come together at this at the right time. Um, but you know, we we did a ton of them. We did 18 SPVs in like a 12 month period, and there was not one time that we told a founder we were coming in for X amount that we didn't hit that or surpass it. So I think in this game, reputation is everything, and uh, you know, definitely definitely took some risks, but but they paid off. I agree about uh, reputation. I'm really curious how you broke in at the very beginning from moving over from Long Island Iced Tea or Long Island Beverage to getting into your first deal? I think uh, it's really just about having the right network and uh, convincing people that you can be value-add. Um, and I think at the end of the day, if you're if you're convincing, and I, I do think, I, I tell my, my wife tells me this all the time, um, I'm in the right uh, industry for sort of what my skill sets are. Um, I know uh, Ida, my, my partner, told you that I'm a, a strong debater, and uh, he's right. You know, I can get on the phone and really sort of debate my way through things and convince founders to, you know, allow me to really try and get into deals and then sort of put up some sweat equity. Um, and it, it's funny, it wasn't that difficult. I really encourage a lot of young investors if they want to generate a track record to go the SPV route. Um, David Blumberg from Blumberg Capital was also really inspirational to me. He also started with a bunch of SPVs, turned into a bunch of capital, and you know now he's, he's done a lot. So um, yeah, I think the precedent was set and that, that's the, the path I took. Um, and some of those were big successes. Postmates, I know, was in there. You just mentioned Wonder Mobility. Nutanix? Yeah, Nutanix. Yeah, that was a really good one. So Nutanix, I remember being at Kirkland & Ellis um, and using Citrix to access my desktop remotely. And, you know, the partners at Kirkland Ellis will have you access your desktop remotely wherever you are. I don't care if it's New Year's or Thanksgiving. Um, and what Citrix actually is in sort of the infrastructure stack is it's called like a hypervisor. So it's creating a sort of virtualization of your desktop. Um, but what I realized was sort of legacy infrastructure, network compute and storage were sort of, um, you know, almost like the equivalent of having your, your brains, your kidneys, and your lungs in three separate bodies instead of one. Um, so, so that created a lot 
lot of lag, uh, which is something I was dealing with all the time. You have a partner yelling at you and you're on your laptop trying to have vacation and it's not working because there's a lot of lag. And um, Nutanix and a company called uh, Simplicity created what's called hyperconverged infrastructure, where essentially they took network compute and storage and put it all together into one box. And what was really interesting with Nutanix was you could sort of scale box by box, whereas with legacy infrastructure, you either had to go with something small and outgrow it or go with something really big and then grow into it, which is just not efficient. Um, so yeah, so for Nutanix, I, I had followed the company um, you know, very seriously. Um, I had known that Bloomberg Capital uh, led the Series A um, of Nutanix, um, and then I was able to very oppor opportunistically get in uh, through a tender offer. Uh, there was a, an executive that wanted to sell some, sh some shares, um, and I, I convinced the right people that I could add some value, and uh, that's how I got in uh, in, 20, in 2014. Right, and now the company's public, right? Yeah, they're public. I uh, wrote it all the way to IPO, and I remember in my... Um, in the presentation that I created, I predicted that one of the large players like a Cisco would try and buy them. And Cisco actually tried to buy them for $5 billion like a few days before the IPO. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the board said no, um, which I don't know if that was a good decision or not. But, but yeah, Nutanix is, is a leader in the hyperverge infrastructure space and was a huge win for me as a young investor. Got it. So you went from the SPVs, which was a successful route for you, into creating both a fund one for Strut Capital, but also this blockchain hedge fund. And I think one of the reasons I was excited to interview also is I think some people who don't know you well do associate you with that blockchain fund. So... Yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say, so there's just some confusion as well because Long Island Ice Tea, after you left, became Long Island Blockchain. And I think some people muddled that all. I yeah. certainly did. Yeah. So what I what I'll just say is for me in terms of the long blockchain situation. Um, that was a little frustrating for my brother and I, because from our perspective, we built a really strong company. We sold it. We had nothing to do with the company. I think we had been out of it for around two years or even three years before that whole thing came out. Um, they, for whatever reason, were flirting with a sub $100 million market cap on the NASDAQ um, and decided to sort of take advantage of the craziness that was surrounding blockchain at the time. And even though they held no blockchain assets, they called themselves long blockchain. Um, I remember waking up, I know where I was in my house, to 714 emails. All my buddies in New York were like, what the hell happened? And, and I said, honestly, I have no idea because I'm not, I sold the company. Um, but, but yes, uh, that did happen. Um, there were some funny onion type headlines there from were, that. There were a lot. I think the stock shot up like, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred percent uh, in 24 hours. But I think people very quickly realized this was more of a gimmick um, because they held no blockchain <laughs> assets. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, not such a fan of that decision. But um, generally, from our perspective, we pride ourselves on sort of being at the cusp of core technology innovation. And I think whether you're bullish on blockchain or not, or cryptocurrency or not, you still have to accept that blockchain in and of itself is a new paradigm. Um, my partner, Ida, um, was ve a very, very early adopter of, of blockchain and cryptocurrency, you know, buying Bitcoin, you know, in around 2014, um, really close with, uh, you know, a lot of the guys that ended up starting Polychain, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we had a company that we sold to Bittrex. It was an SPV investment of ours. Um, Bittrex is one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the United States. Um, so when that acquisition happened, a lot of people contacted me and said, hey, you clearly have some information asymmetries in the space. What are you up to? What are you doing? Uh, and I felt really good about where Strat Capital Fund One was at the time. I didn't have my 14-month-old daughter yet either at the time. And I was like, hey, like, let's be opportunistic and let's do it. 
Um, the next thing we knew, we were able to put a, a very significant amount of capital together and Crosscut Ventures specifically, which is the largest seed fund here in LA, actually amended their LPA um, to like turn themselves into like a pseudo fund of fund um, to invest in us. So I think that's why in the sort of LA ecosystem, we very quickly went from like under the radar industry agnostic seed fund to blockchain people. Um, from my perspective, uh, we, we still have our blockchain fund open and it's doing really, really well. Um, and I'm still very bullish on the ecosystem. Um, but just generally, I really enjoy vertical SaaS. I enjoy, you know, broader fintech. I enjoy consumer. I obviously have a passion for CPG as well. So, you know, we didn't want to sort of limit ourselves. But um, that is a fund that we actively manage. And Ida specifically takes a, a really, um, you know, he, he really is on the front lines when it comes to that. Got it. So just tactically, uh uh, there's, you're focused now on fund two. Cause you just, I saw you had your first investment in fund two. Yes. Ida is a, a partner here as well. Yes. And then you've got Greg who I actually just met. Correct. Um, and, and Ida has a particular expertise in blockchain. Am I yes. Right? Correct. Like he, he can literally talk circles around me when it comes to blockchain. And I think most people. <laughs> so how should founders think about you when they're thinking about the, all of the investors in LA and who they might take money from? Why would they think I'm going to go to Struck? Yeah, yeah. You know, listen, like, obviously I'm biased um, because I, you know, <laughs> I'm obviously a fan of my fund. But I think um, from my perspective, um, we talk about more sweat equity per dollar invested than anyone out there. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not the most talented person in the room, but I literally grind myself uh, harder than most. I think Ethan and Greg think I'm crazy, and, and, and maybe I am. Uh, you know, I tell founders that when they take term sheets from us and we're leading rounds, I don't care if it's Telegram, WhatsApp, WeChat, iMessage, whatever it is, I'm literally available 24-7, you know, um, and if I can't figure something out, I'm well-networked enough to find somebody else who can. So, you know, we, we really put um, the onus on ourselves when we're doing diligence on deals. You know, I find that a lot of VCs are very me-centric. It's like, how do you return my fund? How do you make me money? You know, obviously, we do unit economic analysis, competitive landscape analysis, TAM analysis, founder analysis, but um, we also really heavily uh, um, diligence ourselves. Um, we want to be able to show some serious strategic value during diligence. Um, and, and if we believe that if we can demonstrate that, it sort of creates network effects where our term sheets will get accepted at lower pre-money valuations and we'll sort of turbocharge these companies the minute we invest. So, um, you know, again, I'm, I'm very biased. I would invite you to talk to some of the founders. How much of your investing is here in L.A. versus other, other geographies? Yeah. So, you know, we're lucky enough from Fund One, uh, you know, to, to be in deals like Joy Mode, which I know you guys are as well. We led the seed round of Scratch Pay, which is close to $15 million Series B from Mars. Um, we're in a deal called Mythical Games that's a, about to announce a, a really large Series B. Um, we've got another company called Pay Forward that's also about to announce a big event. Um, so we, we've got a lot of LA deals, but I think from Fund One, the goal really was to um, sort of be co-investors and just be in a situation that we can prove to ourselves that we can invest with the best funds in the world and go after you know sort of um, any any geography. You know, now for Fund Two, the goal um, is to to lead round. So we believe that. Um, when it comes to sort of doing something at scale, that that cadence is going to be um, easier to achieve when you're actually talking to LA companies, because it's harder for me to convince a company in New York, you know, that they should take my term sheet as opposed to, you know, a fund like Lehrer that is in New York or Thrive or whatever it is. And so you're generally leading rounds. Now, Fund 2 is bigger, so you're leading rounds with a million dollar, a million and a half? Yeah, so our goal is to get to 75 million for Fund 2. If we get there, it would be 25 portfolio companies, one and a half million dollar checks, deploy 37 and a half million dollars and save the other 50 
50% for follow-on. Um, if we get to 50, if, we're, if we stop it at 50, then it'll be like million dollar lead checks and allow us to, to be collaborative. Got it. Very yeah, do you worry about that? that if you're at 75, that you won't be able to collaborate as much with, with local people? Yeah, and you'll I, have to win deals rather than win a part in deals? You know, I think seed rounds, you know, are, if it's a $3 million round, I think there's definitely room um, for you and, and funds that you enjoy working with. And 10110 is definitely one of them. Do, do you have, um, I mean, your background's CPG. Do you have. Uh, do you have focus? Uh, do you have particular sectors you really want to? Yeah, it's super confusing for people because yes, my background CBG, but I consider my brother the CBG guru. I just consider my, myself someone who is lucky enough to who, to be able to wear a lot of hats and just sort of grind my way into some semblance of success. Um, I I really enjoy um, sort of fintech like neo banks. I enjoy vertical SaaS. Um, you know, we we've done a lot of consumer deals as well. We truly believe that we're an industry agnostic fund. Um, I'm petrified of sales cycles in healthcare, so we don't usually touch that. Um, and, and we're not doing much like biotech. Um, but yeah, we we if it's a strong founder, like we want to see the deal, and if we can add value, we're going to want to get involved. Have you ever walked away from a deal where it looked everything looked great, but you're like, why are we at the table? I don't, I don't know how we add value. Yes, yes, definitely. Like when we, you know, when we, uh, you know, when we talk about sort of, um, you know, sort of in our CRM moving deals through the pipeline, um, a big aspect of sort of that rubric and that scoring methodology is sort of how strategic are we and. You know, there's there's not a lot of time in the day. Um, so honestly, if uh, if we can't if we if we can't really see a path to us being very strategic, it's probably not going to make its way through the funnel to begin with. Um, so I think it's rare to, for there to be a situation where you're like, I've gone through the whole process, everything's perfect, but like we're just not strategic enough. We really try and tackle that up front. Actually, I want to go back to just the you raising fund too. Yeah. Um, and there were two things that stood out to me. One was maybe uh, maybe Greg said this to me, but that you're you're a uniquely young team of, you know, you're a young partner to be raising a big fund. Um, and also on your website, it said we support young founders providing core te technology innovation. Uh -huh. um, you know, is that a very strategic place you're trying to? you know, thing you're trying to carve out or? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough, right? Because youth by its very nature is ephemeral. So we don't want to uh, push that too difficult, too hard. And I feel like I'm getting older all the time. But what I will just say is I think venture capital is a really unique asset class um, where, you know, that sort of that that Gen Z that's building from, you know, their high school, you know, their basement in high school, or their college dorm room, whatever it is, there's just a certain language that we can sort of speak that I find more legacy um, funds or GPs cannot. Um, now, at the end of the day, I think if, if you're running a fund that's been around for a long time, you should. It makes sense to to just add, you know, youthful individuals to your team, and then I think you can get a, get across that, you know, get over that bridge really quickly. Um, but just generally for us, um, you know, we we do like to sort of say that we're young and we're aggressive and we'll out hustle and we'll outwork. Um, and we and we truly believe that. I, I don't like to generalize, and I'm not. I don't. I'm not a fan of ageism by any means. But um, venture capital is a really unique asset class. I think if you're trying to start like a law firm or even in private equity, the, those those nuances sort of aren't there. But in VC, you've got young founders doing incredible things. 
Um, so we sort of wanted want to tell them that listen, we are young enough to know you, but old enough to to sort of lead you. Um, so we do like to sort of play that up while we while we still can. Do you think that lends you to a certain kind of deal? Like, w- tell us about Nutanix. W- were they young or the- no, no, they were older. But I mean, pay forward. The founders were older as well. It's it's. Uh, I mean, you know, it can go both ways. I, I definitely don't think that. Um, again, if a founder's over a certain age, we're not going to do a deal. I would I would never say that. Um, but what I would say is on the flip side, maybe there are deals that we shouldn't have won that we did because we can just really get close with the founders and like make them feel like it's family. And what we kind of tell them too is when you're at the seed stage, you're sort of like in high school. My goal is to get you into the best college, right? I want to get you into Stanford. I want NEA to lead your Series A. Um, so, so we explain to them that you know you're going to get those those crazy logos um, at the A round. In the seed round, you sort of want to work with people that you're very comfortable with that understand you. And 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 I do believe that. I think that has helped us win deals. And are there any particular A round firms that you like to work with? You you mentioned NEA a couple times. Yeah, yeah. So Ida, um, you know, was did a few years at NEA, and we love Forrest Basket. He's an advisor to the fund, um, and just generally, they don't they sort of scrap their seed program. Um, so we like to consider ourselves sort of scouts for them in the LA ecosystem. You know, love Rick and all the guys over there. Um, obviously, we're, we're, we've, we were a very big fan of Kraft um, as well. I think David and, and Bill have done a really good job just sort of expanding over here. We love Michael Tam. Um, he's someone that I've known for a long time, and I consider him a personal friend. Um, just generally, you know, I think for us, there's a lot of really strong Series A funds. Um, they're not just in Silicon Valley. They're here as well. Um, and we love when we sort of you know, when we sort of can, can contrast those initial boardrooms to sort of those boardrooms after we have those Series A machines uh, behind us. And there's a lot of funds that can add that level of value. So anything unique uh, that that has come across your desk or that you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I just think for us, um, you know, we bring up like the blockchain fund, um, you know, which for some people, it seems it sounds like unfocused. But if you sort of understand our ethos, um, we really will do whatever we need to do uh, to sort of get a deal done. Um, one thing that really sticks out to me is for Scratch Pay, which is a deal that I really love because it's really mission driven as well. You're providing mobile for it's an L.A. deal. Um, they just closed a, a big Series B led by Mars Pet Care. Um, you, uh, you know, you're doing mobile first point of sale financing in the veterinary care space. Um, so essentially, you're allowing individuals. You know, you, you rush your animal to a hospital under exigent circumstances, and they say we can save the animal's life, um, but it's going to cost four thousand dollars. The average person who doesn't have that that you know cash or credit available has to euthanize the animal, which is destructive to to the family and the animal, of course. Um, and Scratch really puts them in a situation that, you know, through like a, a plot integration, we can get their cash flow-based data, we can pull up their FICO score, we can ask 10 questions, and it's highly predictive of whether or not they're going to charge off. And if we approve them, we can give them a loan, and they can get that same UI UX as like Uber, where you just basically can, can walk out. Um, so, so what I love about Scratch is, yeah, they're making good money, but there's a, a true mission there. Um, you know, we've done thousands and thousands of procedures. We're saving animals' lives. Um, and for that deal, you know, John Keatley, um, you know, part of the you know C-suite of of Green Dot, and then he went to Klarna, and he's really accomplished. And I remember um, being introduced to him by Tim Greenleaf, who's a 17-year board member of Green Dot, and he's one of our our uh, venture partners. And John was like, you know, Adam, really like what you're doing. Love your hustle. Love your energy. 
but you know I've got some really big players that are, are trying to do this deal and I'm just not sure there's room for you um, and then what I realized was I was like you need venture capital for OPEX but you also need a, a credit facility um, you're a fintech company in the loan origination space so you need it um, and he had actually gotten an offer from Leonard Green's the charitable arm of Leonard Green it was a 12 and a half million dollar facility 16% APR with some heavy warrant coverage and uh, I was like I don't care about the warrant coverage um, I really want to do this deal and 12 and a half million is not enough for you I think you need like 25 million and I called a buddy of mine Blair Silverberg who does a lot in the debt space and I said Blair I'm showing you this loan tape um, I really want to do this deal the way that their drawdown schedule works is they're drawing the capital over 12 months so I'm confident I can raise the money but I want you to backstop me in case I can't raise the money because um, I never want to be in a position that I have to tell John that you went with me and I, I couldn't give you the capital to expand your business um, and uh, we actually ended up beating out Leonard Green and, and winning that deal and um, you know sort of leading the seed round so I just think what's sort of weird about us, and and I don't think it's weird. I think other VCs are weird. It's like, why don't people think outside the box and do things that are different? Um, you know, for us, like, we really want to win this deal in the fintech space, so we're going to raise an SUV and give them a credit facility. Um, we think there's a real opportunity to do something in blockchain. Well, we're going to put together an open-ended evergreen hedge fund, and we're going to go after it. Um, I think some people, especially when you talk to institutional investors, they want you to be focused, and I think now I am going to be very focused. Um, but just generally, um, you know, I, I, I think some people may think it's weird, but I think everyone else is weird. I think it's important to sort of think outside the box and do whatever you can to sort of win that deal. Okay, question for both of you on this, which is the competition versus cooperation thing. My understanding is so you just won that deal. You won scratch pay because you were going hard, hustling hard. But like if someone introduces you to a deal, I assume that means like right there you won't then cut them out of the deal is that how you guys both think about it yeah so from my perspective like reputation is all you have it's a really small sandbox um the second deal that we we did from fund two i was actually introduced by a prominent vc in new york um and i literally i was like i want to write a term sheet on this and before i sent it i called them and i was like what are you doing um I, i've i've seen people play dirty and do things the wrong way i'm a big believer in karma like uh we don't operate that way so, yeah. so we can always introduce people yes, to you. And I then swear you'll... on my life, like it, yes. it's written in stone here. Uh, yes, 100%. Yeah, what he said. <laughs> I know. I just like, I just never was sure. Like if you introduce a David's great company. Like, no, we're not, we're not but if you introduce a great company to some other fund, I, I wasn't quite sure. You... The, the understanding is, yeah. is I mean. Small sandbox. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's, I, a, it's a long game. It's a small sandbox. And, you know, if you screw somebody once, it's unlikely that they're going to work with you again. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think there's any one deal that's worth your reputation. No. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, go ahead. Well, this has been great. I mean, I'm really glad to spend this time with you oh, and get to know you, you a little so better. Much. And I, I yeah. look forward to doing more deals together. Yeah. You too. Let's get it done. <laughs> We thought this show was great. If you did too, please share with a friend, tweet about it, etc. I'm 100% serious that it really does mean a lot to us and we appreciate it.